in his 2011 book called The Social Animal, David Brooks summarizes vast amounts of social science research by stating this, information programs alone are not very effective in changing behavior. Probably comes as no surprise to us. He writes this, he says, both reason and will are obviously important in making moral decisions and exercising self-control, but neither of these character models has proven very effective. You can tell people not to eat the French fry. You can give pamphlets about the risks of obesity. You can deliver sermons urging them to exercise self-control and not eat the fry. And in their non-hungry state, most people will vow not to eat the fry. But when their hungry self arises, their well-intentioned self fades and they eat the French fry. Or the donut, whichever the case may be. When I read that earlier this week, I couldn't help but think of Jesus' words to his followers. Those words that we've heard that we we started this series with, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. You will receive power when the Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Jesus knew that even though the hearts of his followers might be filled with the best of intentions, that would be if they even had a clue as to what he was about to call them to in their lives. And I'm not sure that they did, really. But, But if they did, their hearts could be filled with the best of intentions, great motivation, and there was just no way in the world that they were going to carry out in their human strength and their natural abilities, the mission that he had for them to be his witnesses. Wait. Wait. Do not leave Jerusalem. Wait for the gift that my father promised. And, 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 and tell me again, why was it so important that they wait for the Holy Spirit in order to be his effective witnesses? What have we learned about that word witness? Anyone? Martyr. It's the same root word. Martyr. And there is no one, let's be honest, there's no one, regardless of how strong they are, how naturally talented they are, how, how filled with good intentions they are. There is no one who is going to die to self. That is what a martyr does. There's no one who dies to self for the long haul and can do it in a way that exalts Jesus in their life. Honestly, in those few times of self-sacrifice done in my own strength, the truth is, I really want you to recognize how sacrificial I am. Can you relate? Oh, I hope somebody sees me do these good things. Well, who's that about? Certainly not about Jesus. That's why we've learned that the Spirit is so important 
using Brooks' analogy, we may determine not to eat the French fry because we know it's bad for us. We listen to sermons about bad fries and we read all the information, but when our hungry self arises, our best self fades and we'll eat the fry even though we know we shouldn't. In the words of author and poet Carl Sandburg, I love this. There is an eagle in me that wants to soar. There is also a hippopotamus in me that wants to wallow in the mud. (laughs) What an illustration! I don't know that he intended it this way, but what an illustration of the clash between the sin nature and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And what we have learned together is that the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, God himself, Jesus used that male pronoun, refers to the Spirit as he, God himself moves into his people so that they will have the power to stay out of the mud. There are moments when I want to soar for the glory of God and there are moments more often that I care to admit when I want to wallow in the mud of self-concern, self-care, self-preservation, self-indulgence, self-pity, self, self, self. You never feel that way, right? It's just my problem, I understand that. But just humor me and we'll carry on. That self-focus is what the Spirit gives us power to kill. That is what death to self is. To live lives that call attention to Jesus. To, get, to live lives that, that I've suggested scream, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. He is so important. Not me. I'm not important. My dog. Some of you have met My dog is terrified of thunderstorms. When thunderstorms start, he heads to the basement. No, he bolts to the basement. It's dark. Somehow it's removed from the thunderstorms. He doesn't hear them as well down there. And it doesn't matter how many people are in our house how many people that he can be best friend to because he thinks that everybody comes to our house as his new best friend. It doesn't matter how many people are there. It doesn't matter how many good treats are possible. You know, if there's food in the house with all these people there, thunder comes, he's gone. Cannot do it. Down to the basement he goes. The Holy Spirit lives in God's people to keep them from acting like my dog. from doing what just comes naturally. In fear, he runs to the basement. And I can tell him all that I want. No need to fear. The thunderstorm is not going to hurt you. He doesn't listen. He doesn't even listen to my wife, who talks sweetly to him. And they have a special connection. Just ask her. His default mode is to think only about himself. I got to get out of here. I got to do what's good for me. He runs for cover. Our default mode in life, my friends, is to run from those things that make us fearful, to run from those things that concern us, run to places that make us feel safe and feel good, 
We make life about us. Again, I know this only applies to me. I'm just using the plural pronoun in sort of a loose way, okay? So just, just hang in there. Things that, that make us feel safe and secure and, and that make us feel special and appreciated and, and, and sometimes they even make us feel better than others compared to this person and how they do or don't do things, etc., etc. The Spirit lives within us to check all of those natural impulses and responses that are related to the sin nature and to remind us when we are reacting out of fear, when we are reacting out of selfishness, when we are reacting out of of concern for for self-preservation or or self-esteem, self-promotion, the Spirit exists to remind us, number one, of who Jesus is and what He has done for us and how loved, how precious we are to the Father. Remember Abba? How we, are, how we are secure. That nothing separates us from His love. It doesn't matter what's staring us in the face. Nothing separates us from His love. And on and on and on, truths like that will come into our lives. The Spirit speaks those truths into our lives. We need to listen. There's something else you need to know about my dog. He's going deaf. (laughs) Irritates me no end. For a while I thought he was just being, you know, blatantly you know, disregarding, you know, kind of an attitude. Oh, what are you going to do, kill me? I'm about ready to die anyway. But he really is going deaf. Sometimes he doesn't hear the thunder like he used to. And he is much happier in his life. We need to learn to listen to the Spirit and be deaf to the other Things that speak fear and concern and self-interest into our lives. We need to be intentional about listening to the Spirit so that we become deaf to those other things. So the high point of our worship service this morning, of course, is, is our celebration of communion together. Jesus told his followers, do this often and remember me. We need to be reminded that this is more than just a a fond remembrance. Jesus, what a nice man. What a good teacher. What a gentle, loving example of how life should be lived. It's so much more important than that. When we come to this table, we are remembering how he chose to come to earth to be the sacrifice, the only possible atonement for our sin, the sin of rebellion against God, Father, Son, and Spirit as our Creator and as our Sovereign. And I was reminded of that this morning when we sang, It is well with my soul, Christ has regarded my helpless estate. Theologically speaking, we could say, we didn't have a snowball's chance in hell. Okay, that's not very theological. We were, theologically speaking, according to Ephesians 2, objects of wrath 
But as Paul continued in his writing to the Ephesians, he said, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. We come to the table this morning, and that's what we are both remembering, and that is what we are living for. That is what witnesses for Jesus live for. That is what the Holy Spirit empowers us to do. He lives in us to empower a life that becomes a witness for Jesus in the very ways that we think, our value systems, our words, our actions. Table is a reminder of the price that was paid for our salvation. Incredibly high price. And our response as God's people needs to be, ought to be, certainly should be a life that is surrendered to a God who loves us that much. And that surrender, though it will, it'll not look the same for us in terms of the particulars of how we live that out. What will always be the same is that common starting point, death to self. Death to self. That's the work of the Spirit just makes no sense at all, and and you know this. It makes no sense that, that we would claim with joy the salvation that Jesus died to give us and then live a life of our own choosing. That is the easy believism of our consumer evangelical culture in which we find ourselves. In the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, it makes grace cheap. Makes it very cheap. I'll take Jesus' sacrifice for the afterlife, but in this life I get to choose how to live. No. That's very skewed thinking. But the truth is, I I think that probably most of us don't think that way. We don't believe that. But far too often, we live as if that is what we believe. And that's where, again, the great need for the Holy Spirit to live in us, to lead us, to empower us. That's the great need for the Spirit. So that we can live as the witnesses for Jesus that he has called us to be. Live out what we say we believe. And again, that starting point is always death to self. That is what the Spirit is about. Living in the power of the Spirit so that our lives are different than those who don't have the Spirit in their lives. So, this morning, as we prepare to read our text, I want you to see ahead of time, again like we did last week, two verses right near the end of our text that I think are just so important to the passage. We're going to read from Galatians 5 this morning. And, uh, of course, many of you will recognize that as the passage where Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And... uh, What leads up to that is a description of life that is not lived by the Spirit. Life that is not surrendered to the Spirit. It's a a fairly graphic description. And then he follows that with, okay, now here's what life looks like when it is lived by the power of the Spirit. Heather, can we put that? You got it. Those who belong to Christ Jesus. We'll read into this. You'll hear Paul say, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, 
let us keep in step with the Spirit. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Let's stand and let's read the entire text together. Here we go. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. What a list, huh? Both of them. (laughs) I like the second one a lot better than the first one. The sinful nature has been crucified. Heather, can we put that verse back up? And we'll include our our neighbor question with this one. Again, that text that we read our way into. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Okay. The sinful nature, Paul is saying, has been crucified, meaning its hold upon our lives is broken similar to the language that he uses in Romans 8 when he talks about no more bondage to the sin nature. But the sin nature is not dead in us yet. So how can we know, here's what I want you to talk with your neighbor about for just a couple minutes, how can we know that we are living out the crucifixion of the sinful nature with its passions and desires? It's an active sense. It's something that has happened. The action continues on a daily basis. If we look closely at the language, how can we know that? How do we know that we're living out the crucifixion of the sinful nature with its passions and its desires? See what your neighbor thinks. It's a hard question. You're right. My wife says this is a hard question. Sorry, no fluffies this morning. This is a hard question. Okay, we ready? Boy, there's some serious conversation going on up here. And it's not even Broncos season. Okay. So there's that sense of I, I'm always struggling against stuff that I know is not godly or of Christ. Good. Fruit. What kind of fruit? Neighbor. Fruit of the Spirit. Ah. If your life is full of this spiritual fruit, it's a sign that you are abiding in Christ, in the Father, and in the Holy Spirit. 
What do you think? Good answer? Do you want to preach the rest of the sermon? That was really good. <laughs> what else? Isn't that the pits? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As we should. Yes. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, we're, we're going we're gonna to talk through the fruit of the Spirit, and then I'm leaving it up to you and the Spirit. <laughs> so you're just not a perfectly controlled, reasonable father all the time? Exactly. And what have we learned, if I can follow that up, what have we learned about the Spirit? The Spirit's a person. It's not some magical force. It's the presence of God in us. And so do we have that dialogue with the Spirit that we have talked about? Do we ask the Spirit to speak into our lives and to remind us of the truth when we're in the heat of those moments? And that's, that's the language. It's not a once and done, you know. Make the decision and then keep after it. And, and another translation would say, keep in line with the Spirit. You know, you're, 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 you're following this, this line as the Spirit leads. It is that, it's that surrender that we have often talked about. My, you know, myself gets in the way of everything. It really, really does. We want to increase those wow moments, and I believe that the Spirit is in us to increase those wow moments. We need to be listening to the voice of the Spirit, recognizing those situations that cause something other than Christ-like character to come out of us. So, so let's look a little more closely this morning at, at the fruit of the Spirit. Because I think if we give some attention to what, where Paul has just been, I mean, he's just laid out these fruits and then gives us this challenge. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. What kind of attention are we giving to the fruit of the Spirit? It's a vivid contrast that Paul puts before us. He says the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, and then he gives us that exhaustive list of, of actions and attitudes that, if you look at them, they are, they're extremely self focused. They may involve others, but it's for the sake of self, self-gratification and, and personal desire. There's no focus upon God, and the effect of those actions upon others is destructive. It's always destructive. So is it any wonder that Paul warns those that he's writing to, and us, that those kinds of actions and attitudes, people who live with them are not going to inherit the kingdom of God because it's a pretty sure sign that the Spirit of God is not indwelling and directing a life that is filled with those kinds of things. So right away, that strikes a little fear into our lives because, you know, we start slicing and dicing things. Well, you know, if I do this, am I still in? If I do that, am I out? Just throw that away for now and put the focus where it belongs. And that is on what God is teaching us in His Word and opening our hearts to the conviction and the power of the Spirit to transform us into the witnesses that Jesus calls us to be. Enough on that. Those who are indwelled by the Spirit, Paul assumes, will show the fruit of the Spirit. That's a, it's significant that the language is singular. It talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Now, there are different pieces of the fruit. I guess we could call them different pieces of fruit. But they exist together. It's a package deal. So, so the sense of the language is that where the Spirit is control, in control, these different qualities are present and observable in a person's life. Do you see where we begin to have our homework cut out for us? I think about my life and I go, oh, whoa, i got a lot of work to do for God's glory. 
by the power of the Spirit. What distinguishes them as coming from the Spirit is that they are totally other-focused. So, let's just take a, a quick look as we prepare uh, for communion this morning. And, and as we kind of jog through these, these uh, qualities, these, these different fruits of, of the pieces of fruit of the fruit, I want to ask you to think about Jesus. Remember Jesus. That's what the call of the table was about. Remember Jesus. Remember his life. Remember his sacrifice. Remember that everything about him modeled these qualities. Everything. And then think too of your own life as I will think of mine. The different people and the circumstances where the Spirit is leading us to surrender and allow Him to take control and produce these qualities as a bold witness for the Lord Jesus. You know, if it wasn't for other people, I could be a great witness. You just put me in a world by myself, and I got it. Being a witness is about how my life is surrendered to Jesus so that others encounter him in my life. Same is true for you as well. I don't know if there's an order of importance that Paul puts these in, but I think it's very appropriate and maybe intentional on his part that that love is at the head of the list. He uses the word agape. Probably familiar to a number of us. Agape is the word that is always used in the New Testament to describe God's love. It is a perfect love. It is the quality that the Apostle John says that God is. He wrote, God is love. God's love is unconditional and it is undeserved. And one of the things that we've talked about is that as witnesses, if we are open to the leading of the Spirit, He will lead us to places and circumstances and events and people that sometimes just push us out of our comfort bubble. The Spirit will lead us to those who are unlovable and undeserving. Because that's what we were when God chose to love us. Unlovable and undeserving. That's why it is a godly love, and that is why it's the love that Jesus talked about that would distinguish his followers from those who were not. By this will all people know that you're my disciples, Jesus said in John 13, by the love that you have for one another. He was talking about agape love lived out in their lives by the power of the Spirit, giving them the ability to love one another in a way that others cannot do. Remember, too, that that love acts. John goes on to say, after he talks about God being love, this is how God demonstrated his love for us. And so the Spirit will always prompt us, if we're listening, to notice those who are unlovable and undeserving, in our estimation, and he will prompt us to to act accordingly for those same folks. Second fruit is is joy. It's a word that's often used to to describe the response of the followers of Jesus to difficult circumstances. 
This is the word that James uses in that insane passage in his, his letter. Chapter 1, consider it pure joy when you encounter trials of many kinds. Yeah, I do that every day. Consider it pure joy. How does a believer do this? How does a believer do this? James goes on to write, because we know that the testing of our faith produces perseverance. And perseverance must do its work in us so that we will be complete and mature. In other words, joy marks the life of a follower of Jesus because they know that God is at work in the midst of the difficulties. Where the Spirit leads us into those difficult scenarios, there God is with us and in us. Difficult things are not random and they are not accidents. Now, some people get a little uptight theologically when they want to talk about whether God causes the hard times or allows the hard times. Who cares? What the Scripture promises is that God is in the hard times, molding, shaping, using them for His glory and for maturing us and growing us. Wow, what a witness. When the Spirit prompts us, when the Spirit prompts me, don't whine, be joyful. Your father is in this guy. Your father is in this. Third fruit is peace. It's a word that is somewhat related to the Old Testament concept of, of shalom. The presence of God with us. The presence of God making everything right, regardless of the circumstances. It, it's a big picture word. The most urgent problem that we have as human beings is the status of our soul. And for God's people, that's not a problem any longer. God has given us the gift of peace. He has extended to us the the olive branch of peace, to use that biblical image. God himself gives us himself, and he brings peace to those who are in conflict. How about us? Are we willing to be peacemakers? Blessed are those who are peacemakers, Jesus said, for they will be called, they will be identified as children of God. So when the Spirit prompts us to let the offense go, the Spirit prompts us to forgive, to bring the offer of peace through our attitudes towards those who have been hurtful to us, who have been offensive to us? How do we respond and show ourselves as witnesses in those situations? A fourth one is patience. The word is, is not specifically what we tend to think of as patience. You know, children impatiently waiting for Christmas or for their birthday party or, oh Lord, give me patience in this. It's not as much circumstantial as it is a more of a relational word. The word that Paul uses is one that often refers to the quality of, and this is literal, putting up with others. (laughs) Putting up with others. Again, it's a big picture word. Is God ever patient with you? Is God ever patient with me? The answer, of course, all the time. Young father in a supermarket was, was pushing the cart and, and his little son was just a mess. He was fussing and irritable and crying and pulling things off the shelf when they got close to the, to the cans. And, 
And the father seemed to be pretty calm as he continued down each aisle. He kept murmuring gently, easy now, Donald, keep calm. Keep calm, Donald. Steady boy. It's all right, Donald. And, and there was a mother who was passing by, and she was really impressed with how he was, he was being so calm with his, his son. She said, boy, you really know how to, to deal with a child that, that uh, is in a bad way. And so she bent down close to the little boy and said, so what seems to be the trouble, Donald? And the father said, no, no, no. No, his name is Harry. I'm Donald. <laughs> I can't think of a single instance in my life where, where impatience is not about me when it comes to others. You know? Even in the most spiritual sense, I just can't understand why he or she isn't a more mature follower of Christ. What's their problem? Well, the problem is that it reflects poorly on me if I'm the one who is a part of their life and teaching them and challenging them. You know, impatience with others is something that I think that the Spirit calls us to overcome in His power and His strength, as God is so patient with us. Now, the next three are, are they're, they're sort of a triad. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Kindness is a word that is often used to describe the attitude of God toward humanity. Follower of Jesus is a recipient of the kindness of God. Paul wrote the Romans and he said that it's God's kindness that leads people to repentance. And so the follower of Jesus is someone who, who follows the Spirit's lead to think about others as God has thought about them. We, we always have to remember that everyone that we interact with is broken. They're not who they were created to be. They are broken and of course... That's why I always tell you, people are weird for a reason. We all are. You know, just choose your weirdness. It comes from the fact that humanity is broken. And so the Spirit challenges us. And oh, I hear His voice often in this. When I am beginning to think unkind thoughts towards an individual. Wow. The Spirit reminds me of how God sees them and the potential in their life. Goodness. Goodness is closely related to, to kindness. It's a word that Paul uses that sort of takes kindness to the next level. It's tied up with the idea of generosity that springs from kindness. And so you think about salvation. God's kindness leads us to repentance. And it is our repentance that, that, that ushers salvation into our lives. Kindness and goodness and faithfulness. It's a word that carries the idea of loyalty. The Spirit leads us to think kindly about others that are not easy to think kindly about. Remember, it's always relationship stuff. Um, he will lead us also to be generous towards them and, and to, be, to be faithful, to be loyal and consistent in being both kind and good. Gentleness. It's a word that really specifically has to deal with, with personal control of anger. Sometimes translated as meekness in some of the older translations. Being angry at the right things and not the wrong things. I'm always angry at the wrong things. I'm always angry at things that impact me, that inconvenience me, that make me look bad, that make me feel stupid. Those things make me feel angry. I'm so struck by the fact that 
we see Jesus angry in the temple. Jesus might have been angry when he spoke the woes to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, but that's a hard one to read because the language is, is difficult. But he was angry in the temple. Angry that they had turned his father's house into a marketplace. And the reality was, is that the marketplace was happening in the court of the Gentiles, which meant that the Gentiles couldn't come to the temple and worship. Jesus was ticked over things that kept people from his father. There's so many other things in his life that I think he should have been angry about that he wasn't. (laughs) But then that's me. Yesterday, Sharice and I were talking about a situation in our lives that, that has been challenging and, and it, it, it just provoked this, this anger in me at, 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 a, at a situation. And we'd stopped at the store and she got out and went into the store. And as I sat there thinking more about it, the Spirit said to me, you know, that attitude is a problem. You'll be happy to know I said, you're right. Self-control, the last one, a word that really speaks to how we deal with the desires of the flesh. Food, drink, sex, creature comforts, which in and of themselves are not wrong, but, but they need to be always placed within the, the proper context of God's provision and the intention of those because they can easily take control of our lives, causing destruction certainly to us, destruction to others, to relationships. I think, I think that Paul gives this list as an example of ways that we can look at ourselves and have some kind of an assessment of how am I doing as a witness for Jesus. But, this is an important but, don't trust yourself. Personal assessment gets you into trouble every time. Because we tend to lower our standards the more that we perceive our failures. What I really think we need to do, and this is where you'll probably want to throw me out, but all of this teaching is given in the context of community. I think what we really need to do is we need to find people who love us enough, who we trust because we know they love us, and we need to ask them, would you be a fruit checker in my life? Would you observe for me where you see the fruit of the Spirit and where you don't? And would you speak to me about those things? I'm inviting you into my life to do that because I recognize that this is one way that I can know that the Spirit of God is at work and I am daily crucifying that sinful nature with its desires and its passions. Will you speak into my life? Wow. I mean, I'm not inviting you to do that for me. I'm inviting you to do that for one another. <laughs> Powerful stuff. Again, I, you know, we, I sometimes tease about the Lone Ranger Christian. We're not called to be Lone Rangers. You know, yippee and away we go kind of a thing. We're called to, to, to be in this together. And, and the language that Paul uses here is a language of plurality. This was a letter that was written to a church filled with believers. And, and they would have heard this read in a setting like this. Well, not the building, but in a setting like this, probably in a cave somewhere, or 
maybe in a, in a small building. People would have heard it together and they would have looked at one another and they would have realized, well, this is, this is something that we need to do together. My brothers and sisters, communion is also a together thing. We come to the table of our Lord this morning to, to celebrate and to remember what he has done for us as his people. And I hope to make the connection that as he has done for us, he sends his spirit into our lives and fills us so that we in turn will then do for others. As Jesus sacrificed himself for us, the Spirit gives us the, the strength and the ability to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others who also need Jesus in their lives. Father, as we come to the table this morning, <clears throat> we ask that your Spirit would be very present and speaking loudly and give us ears to hear, give us deafness to the things that are, are just unimportant and of no value. Lord, may we be reminded again and again by your Spirit, of who you are, who Christ Jesus is, what he has done for us, and who we are as a result of faith and confidence in his atoning work for our sinful rebellion. Lord, the problem of our souls has been removed. Christ has had regard for our humble estate. And we come to this table as people, as followers of Jesus, who can say, it is well with my soul. And may that truth impact our lives so that it is also well in the lives of others as we live, uh, empowered by the Spirit, as witnesses for the Savior. In His name we pray. Amen.